The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. got four points I want to bring home out of 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. So just by way of summary, before we jump into the text here, uh, by way of review, Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, to Corinth. It was a group of believers in the city of Corinth. Corinth was the capital city of Achaia, and it was kind of like the city of San Francisco. It was a big and significant city in that area, a very worldly city, very compromised in many ways in terms of their morality. Uh, and so Paul went in there, preached the gospel. He stayed there for a year and a half, we know, and while he was there for a year and a half, he, little by little, God brought believers to him or people who put their faith in Christ and the gospel. And so Paul assembled a church and as the church began to grow over the course of a year and a half, Paul pastored that church, tried to direct them, help them grow in the faith. And then Paul uh, was called by God to go elsewhere and plant other churches. So he left the city of Corinth. Uh, which is, And it's kind of a, a church that's only a year and a half, saved totally out of paganism, is a very unstable or can be immature church or susceptible to a lot of things. Uh, these probably mostly Gentile Greek people who grew up with no biblical Old Testament background. And so when Paul left, uh, after about, just about a year and a half, it was a susceptible church. And he was gone for a couple of years, maybe more. But shortly after Paul left, Apollos came in. Apollos was a believer. Apollos was a Jew by background, uh, a disciple of John the Baptist, and was saved and then God used him. He was mighty in the Scriptures, a, a wonderful and amazing, insightful teacher, especially of the Old Testament Scriptures. Became a believer and a preacher of Jesus. So after Paul left the ministry at Corinth, Apollos came in and had a significant ministry in this, the church of Corinth there. We don't know how long he was in Corinth, but he was in Corinth the same time that the Apostle Paul was in the city of Ephesus planting and pastoring a church. So Paul and Apollos, one was an apostle of God, the other just a mighty teacher of God, Apollos, they were being used simultaneously by God in local churches to teach the Word of God and disciple believers. They were working as teammates in tandem with different gifts in different places at the time. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16 just for a second to look at an interesting verse at the end of this book in Corinthians at verse 12, and it gives us a little insight about this Apollos fella. So Apollos is spend some time in Corinth, the church that Paul had planted, and pastored. That's always a challenge for another pastor to come in after somebody else planted the church and pastored there because the shadow of the previous pastor usually looms large in the memories of the people and sometimes that creates conflict. So here's Apollos stepping in the shadow of the Apostle Paul in Corinth and he served in Corinth for a while and was teaching and preaching and then something happened, actually something probably bad while he was there. Uh, verse 12 says, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you, Corinthians, with the brethren. So what happened was Apollos was in Corinth for a while, taught, and then he left. And from indications of another scripture passages, he left rather abruptly because there was a problem at the Corinthian church. What happened? Strife began to mount in the church of Corinth pretty early on, and it apparently became overwhelming for Apollos. And so he ended up leaving Corinth. Then he meets up with Paul at some point. They talk or they communicate. And then Paul encourages Apollos and say, you know what, I think you should go back to Corinth and make a visit and visit those saints and love on them or whatever needed to be done. 
And so when Paul first talked to Paul, saying, go back to Corinthians, those very factious, difficult people that you're supposed to love as believers. And Apollos' response is interesting. Uh, in verse 12, Paul says, I encouraged Apollos greatly to come to you, Corinthians, with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come to you. Not at all. So it was incredibly, incredibly challenging for Apollos. But he will come when he has opportunity. So apparently Apollos promised Paul, well, I don't want to go now. Maybe the dust has to settle. Um, and Lord willing, we can go in the future. So I wanted to point that passage out because the passage at hand, going back to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, the two main people of the topic of interest in verse 5 are Apollos and Paul. Um, Paul and Apollos were familiar to the Corinthians. They both had a ministry there. And Paul is going to address an issue or their wrong thinking regarding the way they understood how God was using Paul and Apollos and other ministers in his church. And basically what we need to understand is if you start at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is really dealing with one main theme and argument, and that is the Corinthians, you guys got a problem. The Corinthian church's problem was they were a divisive, factious group of believers. And so for four chapters, Paul is making one argument dealing with Christians who are thinking wrong, and as a result, they're being divisive in their behavior. So we've got to see chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 kind of all together. And so that's why as I'm going through it, I don't want to chop it up too much taking just one verse at a time because there needs to be a continuity and a flow of the big picture. So we've got to keep big chunks together as Paul's got one theme and one argument. So uh, 1 through 4 kind of really go together. Uh, Apollos and Paul are mentioned in chapter 1 at the beginning of the epistle when Paul pointed out what the problem was. He's writing this letter not to commend them but to correct their problems. And 1 Corinthians 1 um, Verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, you fellow Corinthian believers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. So they had divisions in their church. Verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. You are squabbling as Christians. You are divisive. That is wrong. That is sinful. And so for the next, really, four chapters, he wants to solve that problem. He wants to expose it because being divisive and squabbling and quarreling is sinful, fleshly, carnal, compromised behavior. It has no place really in the Christian life. It has no place in the Christian church where there really needs to be unity and harmony, which reflects really the character of Christ. And so he exposes the division and then he diagnoses why there's division. And then he gives a remedy or a suggestion of how they can overcome the division. So that's kind of the flow of his argument in these four chapters. By the way, if I were to ask you a surprise pop quiz theological question, and I was going to ask you to give an answer, don't answer out loud, but here it is. Because I've said this a few times just by way of reminder. Uh, there, here's the question. How many primary ways have I said in the past that Satan attacks the church? I guess you can answer out loud if you wanted to. It, I've said three. Um, three main ones. And is that, and I think every way that Satan attacks a church or a Christian can actually be put in under one of these three categories. And that is he attacks the unity of the church. You see that in every church in the New Testament, in every epistle. So Satan attacks the unity of believers. He attacks the purity of believers, trying to compromise 
get them to compromise their morality and become immoral. So Satan attacks the unity of the church, the purity of the church, and the theology of the church. The doctrine of the church. What the church teaches and believes. So I've said that repeatedly. It's kind of interesting that the book of Corinthians can be outlined exactly like that. Chapters 1 through 4 is about the division in the church at Corinth. Chapters 5 through 7 is about some immorality, purity in the church at Corinth. And then actually, chapters 8 through 16, the rest, is their problems with theology. So that's exactly the flow of the book of Corinth. So we are in the section here with respect to the unity of the church. And so let's go ahead and look at it in more detail. Uh, I titled the sermon today, and it could have had a lot of different titles, but one thing that I want to emphasize was understanding true spiritual growth. Understanding spiritual growth. That was one of the problems that the Corinthians had. They were arrogant. They were puffed up. They thought they had a lot of knowledge. They lived in an educated society. They had uh, the likes of their ancestors and their culture that were very intelligent and known for their profound wisdom, and that was the Greek philosophers from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And then they mixed that in with their new Christian faith. And so they became very puffed up very quickly with their so-called knowledge. The problem was the knowledge that they had accumulated and the knowledge they were depending upon was worldly wisdom and not biblical knowledge. So they were misled by the knowledge that they had. And this false knowledge that they had, this worldly wisdom they had, was leading them to wrong thinking and wrong behavior. And that's really what Paul's addressing in the entire book of Corinthians. You, you Corinthians, you heard the gospel, you believed it, you got saved, and then you started trying to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And you're welcoming the behavior of the world into your life, and you're also welcoming the philosophies of the world into your life, and you're trying to mix it with Christianity. That doesn't work. It spoils everything. And so their thinking was compromised, but they thought they were super spiritual. And so that's one of the things that Paul's going to address here in verses 1 through 9 is he's going to correct their thinking and their behavior. And he's actually going to kind of reprove them and say, you know what, you're not so uh, wise and spiritually minded as you think you are, you Corinthians. Because one of the things that they were doing that was prominent is the Corinthians thought they rose to a level of being smarter than the Apostle Paul and more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. The, the Apostle. And they consider themselves hyper, super spiritual. And that's, he's going to pick up that theme in 12 through 14. But he addresses it in a preliminary way here. They thought they were super spiritual, super Christians, super saints. Paul didn't know as much as he thinks he does. But we Corinthians, we got a corner on the truth. And this was, this was a very self-centered way of thinking. And self-centeredness always leads to division. Because when you are self-centered and preoccupied with self and have an arrogant attitude about yourself, you always look down on other people, which means you're always going to be critical of other people, which always is going to lead to divisions and factions and cliques wherever you are. So it all comes back to your thinking and your attitude, and that was the problem with the Corinthians. So let's go ahead and look at these four points about under, understanding true spiritual growth, with the, which the Corinthians did not. Their false idea about spiritual growth was amassing worldly wisdom and knowledge. And there are, there are religions today, false religions and false ideologies and philosophies that believe that you can either reach God or a higher level of spirituality just by amassing knowledge. And that is false, and that was the false view of the Corinthians. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at it. Here are the four points. Um, for, we'll start with the first one. That's verses 1 and 2 about true spiritual growth, the way it happens and the way it is undermined. Point number one is that immaturity undermines spiritual growth. 
Immaturity undermines spiritual growth. Uh, spiritual immaturity undermines what God is trying to do in your life and also in the church in the Corinthians. They were immature. That was ironic because they thought they were super mature spiritual beings. And so Paul's pointing out, no, actually you're not super mature. Just the opposite is true. You, you are collectively very immature. So verses 1 and 2, look what Paul says about their spiritual immaturity. And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to people of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. And so here Paul is pointing out that, boy, one of the main problems of the Corinthian Christians is they are spiritually immature. He starts out by saying brethren. He uses this term uh, throughout Corinthians most of the time when he wants to rebuke them, give a mild rebuke. But he doesn't want to stand over and lord over them as ultimate judge because Paul is not ultimate judge. He knows that he walks with feet of clay as well. He knows he is sinful. He is susceptible to all the weaknesses that the Corinthians are. And so he puts himself down on an even plane with them by calling them brothers, my fellow brothers. I am just like you. I'm human and flesh just like you. I struggle with the same things that you do. And so this is a great way Paul identifies with them, not elevating himself up on an illegitimate pedestal. And at the same time, it's important when he calls them brethren, what it, literally what that means is fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers. I keep highlighting this point. Paul assumes that the Corinthians are true, legitimate, born-again Christians, despite all the sin and the yuck in their life. Because the some of them were pretty bad divisive, squabbling, fighting, quarrelsome. Then there was their moral behavior that was compromised. We're going to see that in 5-7. through seven. Committing sexual immorality, carrying stuff from their previous life over into their Christian life and not hiding it, but actually flaunting it and bragging about it. And at the same time, calling themselves Christians. And then their messed up theology. It leads up to, to all kinds of messed up behavior throughout the whole epistle. And at the same time, Paul keeps calling them brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. He does not yet assume that they are unbelievers and unregenerate. He thinks these are believers. They accepted the gospel, but they got a roadblock and undermined somewhere in their progress of growth and maturity as Christians. And so that's what he's highlighting here. And so immaturity undermines spiritual growth. And so he says, uh, brothers and sisters, I, when I, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Now he's talking about the first time that he came back when he came into the city to plant the church. The first time he came into that pagan city when he was just preaching the gospel. Started out in the synagogue, then out into the streets, giving the gospel to the Corinthians who were total pagans. And so his, that ministry was an evangelistic ministry. It was one-dimensional. It focused simply on the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and what you are. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. So it was an evangelistic ministry. And so it was one-dimensional. And so he's reminiscing about the ministry he had when he first came to Corinth. And I, brethren, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men. By spiritual, the word spiritual comes from the word pneuma, which is the word for spirit or breath, the Holy Spirit. Pneumatikos is the Greek word. And it means three things, primarily in the New Testament. It can just mean spiritual things. I want to talk about spiritual things. Or it can refer to spiritual people. And it can refer to spiritual people who are believers. 
or it can refer to believers who are living a spiritual life day to day in terms of their practice. So it, it can refer to a Christian's position in Christ, as say, but it can also refer to a Christian's practice of their life, how they live out their life in sanctification day to day. So those are the three main usages. And so context always determines what Paul is talking about. And so here Paul is saying, when I came to you and I preached the gospel to you and you got saved as brand new Christians when I was evangelizing you, I couldn't speak to you as spiritually mature, seasoned believers because you weren't. You just got saved. You didn't have any background. You didn't have any history. You didn't have any roots in Christianity. There's only so much that you could take in and understand. You're just a brand new little baby in Christ. So he's reminding him of that. So in the beginning, uh, I couldn't speak to you as you know seasoned, spiritual, mature believers, but as men of flesh at a limited level, uh, with much human understanding. But he does recognize, but you were truly believers, because he says, as infants in Christ. You were in Christ, you truly were saved, but at a very limited level in terms of your sanctification and growth and maturity. That's how it was in the very beginning. And that's how it should be when somebody first gets saved. They're a baby in Christ, a babe in Christ. And for many of us that get saved maybe later in life, that's a really special time when you first get saved out of a sinful life and God's doing wonderful new things in your life that you've never experienced before and your eyes are open and you've got this joy you never had before and you're a babe in Christ. But God's design is, in, is not that you continue to stay a babe and an infant in Christ. He wants you to grow. Because babies are cute, aren't they? Babies are cute. Babies are wonderful. But God doesn't want babies to continually stay babies. God wants babies to grow and mature, right? Now, an adult who's a baby, that is not cute. That's terrible. And so Paul's about to say that, that you started out as babies in Christ, which is a good thing, but then something went awry. You were infants in Christ. And at the time when you... When I first evangelized and you got saved appropriately, verse 2, it said, I gave you milk to drink. That's uh, the first level of biblical doctrine. That is who Jesus is. That is how you get saved. That is your own nature, that you are a sinner. You are made in the image of God. There is a curse. Uh, you need to be rescued. So these are all first level, first order biblical truths. This is the milk of the Word that Paul's talking about. He's not going deep. This is evangelistic ministry. This is appropriate for unbelievers and for babies. And I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Before, When you were an unbeliever, I wasn't preaching to you. You must believe in premillennialism and the post-trib rapture or whatever. He, he wasn't doing that. It was just the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus the God-man who came here willingly for sinners, who died in the place of sinners, who absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for any sinner that would put their faith in Christ, that they might be spiritually rescued by Jesus the Savior and that Jesus was buried. And then He rose again from the dead as the Lord and reigns on high and is continually calling sinners to come to Him to repent of sin and to be saved. That is the Gospel. That is the milk that Paul appropriately gave them as unbelievers and new believers. So they were immature and infants. I gave you milk to drink. Not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. And here's the problem, though, at the end of verse 2. He says, indeed, even now, you are not yet able. And then he goes on to say, because you are, st you are still fleshly. And so the problem was, after almost five years of being a church, after five years of being saved, it's like the Corinthians didn't move from the very infant baby stage into toddlerhood and young childhood. 
They got in a rut and they are still immature when they should be in that position at all. That is a problem. And Paul's saying, here, you should be growing up, growing your muscles, eating food beyond just mother's milk, being productive, showing signs of maturity. And one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is harmony and unity and love for the brethren in the truth. One of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is harmony and unity with other believers. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4 that over and over again. This is a mark of spiritual maturity. So that's a good thing for all of us to examine our own personal life. How harmonious and unified am I with other believers? Starting in my own house, starting in my marriage, starting with my siblings, starting with my children, starting with my parents. Am I harmonious or am I contentious and divisive? How am I in my local church? Do I have love for the other brothers and sisters in my church? I just, I just love Christians. I love other believers. Do you, do you, wherever you go, when you meet a new Christian somewhere, do you just love the fact that they're a Christian and they are a brother and sister in Jesus Christ no matter where you are on planet Earth? If that is you, that is a great sign of spiritual maturity. You love the brethren. You love the people of God. You're not competing with the people of God. You're not threatened by other people of God. So go to... Um, I want us to flip to Galatians chapter 5 and do self-examination every Christian if you're a Christian this morning the following is true of you it's true of me at any given moment we are either walking in the spirit or we are walking in the flesh walking in the spirit what does that mean Paul's going to talk about it back in first Corinthians 3 don't get too mystical when you hear living by the spirit walking in the spirit because it's not supposed to be hyper-spiritual. It's actually very practical. Walking in the Spirit simply means walking in obedience. That's all it means. It's a synonym. Take Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, and you see that those two phrases are synonymous. Walking in the Spirit is walking in obedience to God, which means submitting to the truth of God, which means what? Which means doing what the Bible says. That's it. See how unmystical that is? I want to walk in the Spirit. How do I do that? Um, No. It's look at the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible, understand the Bible, ask God to help you obey and submit and live out the Bible with the right attitude and actions. Then you are walking in the Spirit. So walking in the Spirit is never apart from the truth of God's revealed objective Word. So it always comes back to Scripture and to the Bible. So Galatians 5. Every one of us can just take a searchlight to our own heart, our own life, and the patterns of our behavior and our words to see if we're walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit. And Paul says, and he's talking to Christians, you're either walking in the flesh in disobedience, you're walking in the Spirit obedience, and here's how you can tell. Uh, Verse 18 of Galatians 5, but if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. And verse 19, but the deeds of the flesh, if, if as a Christian you're being disobedient and not walking in the Spirit and you're walking in the flesh, here's how your life will look like. The deeds of the flesh are the following. Immorality. If you have sexual immorality in your life and you're living in sexual immorality at any given moment, then you're walking in the flesh. You're not walking in the Spirit. If there's impurity in your life, again, this is a moral virtue. There's compromised morality in your life, compromised ethics. Uh, You're not walking in the Spirit as a Christian. You're serving self and the impulses of your own sinful flesh. And all Christians are susceptible to that, by the way. 
if you're living in sensuality and indulging in such, again, these are very similar in overlap, immorality, impurity, sensuality. These are the uh, baser, sinful, fallen impulses of our inner self that we gravitate towards and actually act upon and live out. Then verse another uh, sign of living in the flesh is idolatry. Not giving God the glory, but giving something else glory, esteem, and priority. Whether it's money, a car, a person, a statue, sorcery, compromised religion. And then I want you to look at these following terms. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. If you can't control your temper, anytime you blow up, blow your stack, fly off the handle, however you want to say it. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Anytime we lose our cool, then you are in the flesh, not being controlled by the Spirit. Strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. And by the way, when you have an outburst of anger, you always, 100% of the time, at least I think so, and someone can correct me later if I'm wrong, whenever you have an outburst of anger, you're usually angry at a person, someone else. So it's a, real, a relational sin. And that's the common denominator of all those uh, characteristics in verse 20. They have to do with how you relate to other people. These are sins of relating to other people with a lack of love and a lack of self-control. Starting with enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. There's eight of them. These are eight relational sins. And anytime we are acting out on those, we are walking in the flesh and not walking in the spirit. So how should we live? Well, we need to be walking in the spirit, in obedience to the spirit, in obedience to scripture by virtue of the attitudes that God loves and approves and are virtuous and that's verse 22 of galatians 5 the fruit of the spirit is love towards people joy in the lord contentment peace with other people patience towards other people that are hard to be patient with kindness notice these are all relational as well they're the opposite the antithesis Kind towards other people. That's not passive. That is proactive deeds of kindness. Goodness. That's wholesome. There's a morality to that that's pleasing to God. Faithfulness. Following through on your word. If your word is no good, then you're not faithful. You're living for yourself. You're living in the flesh. Gentleness. That's how you deal with and talk to people. And self-control. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3. Because the Corinthians were being immature, they were being carnal. They were walking in the flesh on a routine basis, fulfilling their own desires and their own self-centeredness. And so their, their life and their actions and their words was characterized by the deeds of the flesh we just saw in Galatians 5. And Paul saying, no, you need to be spiritual if you're a Christian. And that means walk in the Spirit. You need to be characterized by the, the fruits of the Spirit that we just saw in terms of how you relate to other people. And the reason you can't be mature and the reason you're so factious and the reason you can't get along with other people is because you're immature, you're spiritual babies, and a baby, first and foremost, is totally self-centered. Give me milk, hold me, kiss me, lift me up, put me to bed. That's what a baby does, I think. Very self-centered, because that's all they can do. Totally at the mercy of somebody helping them. And that's why Paul uses that word infantile. Just describe the Corinthians in verse 1. You're infantile. It's just all about you. Total self-centeredness. And he also uses the word two times carnal or carnality, sarx in the Greek text. And it means that means totally self-centered. And it means you also have an attitude of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I can do this myself. So there's an attitude of arrogance about it. And that's what the Corinthians were like. 
They were immature, infantile, focused on self, pleasing self, self-sufficient. We don't need God's Word. We don't need Paul. We don't need God. We don't need Christ, even though they say they would. Their actions were proving otherwise. But they are true believers, at least most of them. There's probably some unbelievers mixed in the bunch. But there were actual, genuine, true Christians struggling with these issues of spiritual immaturity. And that happens in the church today. It happens just about in every church where you've got believers and you've got true saints and they don't want to go deep in their theology and they don't want to go beyond the milk and they don't want to go into the meat of the Word and they want to keep it kind of superficial and up here and they want to keep it high because there's less accountability there. And don't go too deep, Pastor, because, whoa, I don't want to be convicted. Tickle my ears. That goes on. uh, It's gone throughout the history of the church. That's true among Christians, and it's a very sad thing. So that's point number one. Immaturity undermines spiritual growth, and that was probably one of the main problems that the Corinthians had, and they didn't even realize it. And they didn't want to go deep in the truths of God. Here's just a wonderful quote by a commentator that I thought I couldn't have said it better. So listen very carefully as he talks about how spiritual immaturity happens, how uh, acting like a spiritual infant perpetuates itself and how every Christian is susceptible to this and maybe at one point in every one of our lives we've done this, we have fallen prey to this, maybe we're in that situation right now, but if we listen carefully we can be reminded of how to avoid being spiritually immature or a spiritual infant only wanting the milk of the word. Because he says the Corinthians, they were not ignorant of truth, that wasn't their problem. They were not uh, unintelligent either, they were educated. They were smart enough. They understood. So their brain wasn't the problem. It was their will that was the problem. It was their attitude that was the problem. And then it goes on to say the Corinthians were not ignorant. But because, because they refused to give up their worldly ways and their carnal desires, the pleasures of the world and of self, from out and from within, they became what James calls forgetful hearers. James 1, 25. A person who does not use information will use it or will lose it. A person who does not use information will lose it. That's true even of Christians. We hear a spiritual truth, we read something, but then we don't use it and implement it, and time goes by, we will forget it. And we'll lose that truth. And spiritual truth is no exception. Spiritual truths that we ignore and neglect will become less and less remembered and meaningful. Second Peter one twelve. Nothing causes us to ignore God's truth more than not living it. So you can be born and raised in a Christian home and be taught spiritual truth. And if you get into a point in your life where you then turn your back on it, ignore it, you're not exposed to it, you're not around it, it's just easier and easier and easier to push it away and not live by it. A sinning Christian is uncomfortable in the light of God's truth. He either turns away from his fleshly behavior or he begins to block out God's light. So I just like that quote because it's saying that true Christians are susceptible to this. So we've got to be continually immersed in the truth of the the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, always piercing our mind, our heart, our conscience, our soul, reminding us of truth, pulling us back to God, helping us get our eyes back on Christ and on the Spirit and away from self. And it's got to be continual and forevermore, always taking in the milk of the Word, the meat of the Word, the living Word of God. That's one of the main keys to overcoming immaturity in our lives, spiritually speaking. So let's go on to point number two, Paul says, about what undermines spiritual growth is their immaturity, but also their carnality. And I talked a little bit about this. That's verses three through four. So let's look at it. Uh, Paul says, yeah, when you first got saved, you were babies. 
But even now, five years later, you are still fleshly. You are, the word he uses is carnal. Carnal is the opposite of being spiritual. You are either spiritual, pursuing the things of God, biblical truth, and the Holy Spirit, or you are carnal, pursuing the desires of your flesh. And your sinful flesh, that is, and self. And so he's telling the Corinthians straight out, you are fleshly, you are carnal. They are carnal Christians, compromised Christians. And by the way, that word carnal, he's not referring to their position in Christ. He's referring to their practice. Not their position, but their practice. Right now, the way you're behaving, you are being carnal, sinful. You're indulging in the things of the world and not in spiritual things. For you are still acting in a carnal manner. For since there is... And here's the evidence of it. How, How can Paul just diagnose them and say, you are being carnal, worldly, sinful his evidence is following in verse 3 he says for by way of reminder said it in chapter 1 verse 11 for since there is jealousy among you jealousy first and foremost is on the inside that's internal it's an attitude of the heart if somebody's jealous you don't necessarily know it we can have people sitting here today who aren't saying a thing aren't doing a thing and they have jealousy in their heart you can't see jealousy so that's the internal aspect of divisive sin among relations you're carnal because you're jealous on the inside and on the outside you're full of strife so they go together jealousy is the inside strife is how it is manifest you're jealous on the inside and it is seen and manifest by and he uses the word strife he used that in chapter 1 verse 11 and strife means literally it's verbal dissension it is oral squabbling it is something that can be observed and heard So squabbling, discord, contention, quarrels, these are all legitimate translations of that word strife. It's like when your kids are fighting, arguing. It's a sinful behavior. And Paul says it's the evidence that you are carnal. There's jealousy and strife among you, and it's rampant. It's not just in a corner, it's everywhere. It's public knowledge. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and carnal, acting like carnal people? The answer is yes. And are you not walking like mere men? What it means by that? You're living like unbelievers. You're believers, yet you are living and acting like unbelievers. And you know what? We all fall prey to that at times. People were to examine our life in any given moment, they'd say, well, I don't see any difference between you and an unbeliever. And it shouldn't be that way for Christians. We can't continue to walk in a state of that perpetually. It says you're acting like mere men. Your lousy testimony. The world is watching. You're no different. Then he goes on to verse four. For when what? And then he goes on. Here's here's. I'm going to get more specific. You're carnal. You are immature. That is sinful. You're self-centered. The evidence is is that there's jealousy among you, and it's manifest through your squabbling and your dissensions and your little cliques in your church. And the origin and the core of that is your false allegiances, not giving glory only and only to God and to Christ, as you should, Christian. You're actually viewing humans the wrong way. You're putting sinful men up on a pedestal. And that's why he says in verse 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, then the others, I am of Apollos. And he addressed this earlier in chapter 1, where people in the church were making celebrities out of mere fallen human men. That's the problem. You know what? We still do that today. We make celebrities and superstars out of pastors, evangelists, spiritual authors. 
elders, teachers. I mean, it happens all the time. It's been in every church I've ever been. I've seen it every. I saw it in seminary. I saw it at every church I've ever been a part of. The celebrity status, American Idol in the church. People come. Oh, have you seen this book by this guy? You ever heard of this guy? Man, he's awesome. He's the awesomest. Not really. I think God's the awesomest. But who's this guy? Hopefully, he's just a faithful servant. So, anytime people are trying to get you to give glory and esteem to a mere human being, that takes away the glory from God and God alone where it belongs. And that is divisive. That creates illegitimate cliques and divisions in the local church and the church abroad. So, who do you like better, Piper or MacArthur? Or who else you want to throw on the blank? That, that's not healthy. That is just categorically divisive inherently because it's putting the focus on the wrong thing and so that's what paul's going to focus on here that problem that was dividing the corinthian church that was carnal that's carnal thinking it's not seeing the big picture it's serving self and when you do this and you esteem human beings that are fallen above god then you're robbing god of his glory and you are being carnal that's what the world does he says aren't you acting like mere men that's what people in the culture do yeah, American Idol, that's for the world. When they esteem Hollywood movie stars. A star, can you imagine? How arrogant is that? Tom Cruise, the Hollywood star. As though he's inherently more important than any other human being made in the image of God. But that's what the world does. They esteem the wrong thing. And that's why Paul says you're, you're acting like mere men, the, the world. You've got your loyalties in the wrong place. It's creating division. Don't be carnal. So immaturity and carnality undermine spiritual growth. God's trying to do in your life and in the local church. And so those are the negatives. Now we'll go to the positives, how they need to think. Your wrong thinking needs to be replaced with correct thinking, which is five through nine. So let's go ahead and look at those points. Uh, number three is that man's role, the human role. Humans are important. Humans are involved in what God is doing. We don't want to totally demean the human element or human effort or human beings. Yeah, we're not supposed to put pastors on pedestals as superstars. But at the same time, there is a balance. God has put elders or pastors in a church with a legitimate authority to be a leader that with it comes inherent respect that's legitimate. So there is that balance. Corinthians got that out of balance. So there is a role for human beings to play in the, the work that God is doing. Uh, and even with pastors and leaders in the church. Well, what is that? Verses 5 and 6. And Paul corrects the balance. Well, what then is Apollos? Since you guys are overinflating the value of, the, of Apollos and how he was used in your church, and many of you want um, Apollos' autograph and his statue in your room, and you bow down to Apollos and at the demise of Paul and Peter and even other legitimate things, which is illegitimate, that's idolatry. Don't do that. So what, how should we view the man that God used, Apollos? And that's his question in verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Notice he doesn't say, who is Apollos, who is Paul? The Greek word is very specific. It is, what is Apollos, what is Paul? And the, that puts the emphasis not on their personality, but on how they are being used by God. What are they? They're just instruments, that's all. They're channels, that's it. They're vessels. They are cracked vessels at that. They are weak vessels at that. They're vessels, but God is using. So what is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, they're servants. That's what they are. A servant. Diakonoi, where we get diakonos, where we get deacon in the church. What's a deacon do? One thing, serves. As a matter of fact, in Paul's day, that was the word for busboy. Busboy or waiter. That's what a 
servant is. That's what a diakonos is. That's what a pastor is, should be, or a Bible teacher. Is a diakonos, a busboy, a waiter, a waitress. And so when you go to a restaurant, who gets all the attention? It's, it's not the waiter or the waitress. It's the people that are sitting down getting served. The waiter and the waitress, they're kind of in the shadows. You're not supposed to be paying attention to them. They're very lowly in terms of their service. They're serving a great product, but they're all about serving and only serving. And that's what a diakonos is. And that's what Paul and Apollos are. They're just servants. They're servants for something greater and for someone greater. That's how they should be viewed. Not as superstars. So what's Paul and Apollos? They're just servants. Servants through whom you believe. They're, they're servants of God. They're vessels of God. They're channels of God's grace. God used them as tools to get the truth of God that changes lives to you. So you should be thankful for the servants God used, but most of all, you give the glory to God because He's the one that saved you, not Paul and Apollos. And they're servants. Every Christian is to be a servant. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord God gave opportunity to each one. Meaning, God called Paul and framed him and created him to serve the way God wanted him to save. Paul had really pretty much nothing to do with it in the end. God dictated everything about the Apostle Paul and then Paul willingly obeyed and complied and was faithful to the call of God. But it all came from God. It all stemmed from him. Him, He did it all. He orchestrated everything. He's the one that brought the truth. He's the one that providentially put Paul where he needed to be at the time. And it was God and God alone and God's truth that saved their soul. Paul and Apollos had nothing to do with it. They were just conduits and vessels that God used as instruments. And that's true of every Christian. And then Paul gets personal. Verse 6 says, man, don't, don't applaud me. Don't send me. Uh, don't ask for my autograph. Don't build a monument after me. Don't carry a little card saying you're part of my club and Paul's my leader with my picture on it because that takes the glory away from Christ and God where it belongs. He says, all I did, I just planted. I was just a farmer. All I did is I went and I put the seed in the hole. God said, here, Paul, here's the seed that saves souls. You don't save souls. And there's the hole. That needs the seed. And so Paul's faithful farmer. He went, boop, put it in that hole, 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 put it in that hole. And then, boom, he was done. That's it. It's a one-time job that he had. That's the verb in verse 6. He planted an aorist tense. One time, boom, his work was completed. That was it. He planted the seed of the gospel. And then Apollos came along after him and watered the seed. Paul planted. Apollos watered. So notice they're working in tandem as teammates. Here the Corinthians were trying to pit Paul and Apollos against each other. And here Paul's saying, that's stupid. We work together. We are partners. We're not competitors. We're serving the same God and the same mission. And we're complementing each other's work. Boy, if you just viewed every other Christian like that, I get to serve alongside that Christian and compliment their work and they're complimenting me. That is awesome. All for God's glory and what He wants done as opposed to being competitive and parochial and divided and protective of your area and jealous about your ministry and threatened by other people and threatened by other Christians and threatened by new Christians and threatened by gifted Christians and threatened by good-looking Christians. On and on it goes. We do that. Paul's saying no. We serve side by side, shoulder to shoulder, got the same task. Uh, And then Apollos, when it says he he watered, aorist tense, just boom, done. Seed was planted. Boom, Paul's job is done, watered, boom, Apollos' job is done. But then God was causing the growth in perfect tense. That means continually going, continually going, continually going. God is the one that's continuing to work forevermore, not humans. So it's on a supernatural, ongoing level. God plants the seed of the gospel and forevermore the Holy Spirit of God. So say you evangelized a neighbor or a relative, that's better. You gave the gospel to a relative 27 years ago. 
was the first time. And you've given it a few times ever since. And you've been praying for their salvation for 27 years, but you haven't talked to them in 20 years. And they didn't come to Christ and they still haven't. And they're as hard as ever. And you might be thinking, uh, well, that's futile. That didn't do any good. Wrong. Yes, you planted the seed that one time and your job was done. And then maybe somebody came along and watered one time and their job was done. But God isn't done yet. Because His Word is living. It is ongoing. And God's work here, it says, God causes in a continual ongoing manner the work and the growth of His Word and His seed and His truth and His gospel that was planted in the heart of that unbeliever and that sinner. And God is going to keep working. So for 27 years, nonstop, 24 hours a day, God the Father, through His Spirit and the conviction of Christ and His Word has been working on the heart of that sinner even though you don't know it. It doesn't look like it from how they react. You can't see it. But God is continually ongoing working on their heart. Right? His word never returns void. His spirit is piercing their conscience and reminding them of the truth and wooing them and either warming them and softening them or hardening them for judgment. His work never stops. And that puts all the onus of the work on God where it should be. You don't have to wring your hands. Oh, I didn't bring all those people to Christ. I didn't have 72 people come at the altar call. I only had one. What a failure. No. God's work never stops because His word is working on their heart. God is the one who causes the growth. He is the efficacious one. He is the only one. So be encouraged. So keep praying for those that maybe you've evangelized and have been praying for their salvation. Keep praying year after year. God continues to work. He is the one that causes the growth. Look at Acts 16, um, verse... This is just an example of how God is the one who causes the growth. This is important in apologetics to know that God is the one who causes the growth. In other words, in an apologetic encounter, if I am talking to an atheist or an agnostic, my goal is not to out-argue this guy until I can debunk all of his arguments and then, oh, I win! 9.7, he only got a 7.7 in his argumentation and reasoning. That, that's not winning. You're not going to argue him into heaven? All we, all we are called to do is plant the seed, water the seed, be a godly example with gentleness and reverence, answering their questions from the Word of God, then praying for their salvation. It's, and the problem is, it's their heart. It's their mind and their ability to understand spiritual truth. They are blinded by Satan. They are blinded by their sin. Their heart is hardened. And so God, His Word, and His Spirit have to remove satanic blinders. That is a supernatural activity that only God can do. No human can do. God is the only one who can remove sinful, self-deceiving blinders that people have. Only He can do that in His truth. So in apologetics, it's really only God is... God's the only one who can make a changing difference in a person's life at the level of the soul. We just have to be faithful in giving them the Word and watering and praying and being a godly example and answering their questions and giving them more of God's truth, which is what transforms souls. Here's a great illustration of how Paul did that. He goes into Philippi. He starts preaching the Word. He's going to plant a church there. Starts out small. First thing he does in verse 13 is on a Sabbath, he goes outside the gate to the riverside where he... Uh, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women. So Paul finds a group of women, just a small group of women, and they're unbel- and he starts preaching to them. Have you ever heard about Jesus? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. So he starts talking to these women. Verse 14, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple. She was an unbeliever. Paul sits down, talks to her, tells her the simple gospel message, the milk of the word about Jesus. She was a seller of purple fabric. She was a worshiper of God, but she wasn't born again yet. She didn't know the fullness of Christ. She was listening to the word of God as Paul preached it. Get this. And the Lord opened her heart. Isn't that amazing? The Lord opened her heart. That only happened after the word was preached. She she heard biblical truth. The Spirit of God was already working on her heart and working on her conscience. God prepared the way. He removed satanic blindness. He removed sinful blindness. He opened her heart and enabled her to believe. The Lord opened her heart to respond. Isn't that amazing? And that's how it works. God is the one who causes the growth. God is the one who saves the soul. Human beings, we're just inane, almost, instruments of of God to disseminate His truth. In obedience, God does the rest. Going back to 1 Corinthians, man's role in spiritual growth, we're, we're just servants. And that's even pastors and elders and apostles. They're just called to be servants. Just be faithful. Just do God's task. That's how true spiritual growth works. We're going to have that understanding. Every Christian is just a servant. A waiter, a waitress. Serving God's wonderful, life-changing truth. Let's go on to number four. Uh, Another positive truth about spiritual growth. God's role in spiritual growth. We've already accentuated that. And Paul brings it to an apex and a crescendo here. Verses 7-9. through Sovereign. God is sovereign. When it comes to true spiritual growth, God is sovereign. Notice the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, and the word sovereign. God reigns supreme in all things. He controls all things. He is the boss. He is the judge. He is the creator. So God needs to be put in His proper place along with frail, fallen, finite human beings. So then, neither the one who plants, me, Paul, the apostle, nor the one who waters, Apollos, whom you overly esteem, is anything, just servants focuses in the wrong place but god see that's the key get your eyes on god glory to god and him alone and to the lord jesus christ but god who causes the growth verse 8 now he who plants and he who waters are one we're not competing with each other don't pit paul against apollos that is illegitimate don't pit macarthur against driscoll or whatever and on and on it goes Don't pit yourself against another Christian. Don't pit GBF against Valley Church. Well, Pillar Church is better than your church. No, GBF is better than your church. That's carnal. That's immature. That it displeases the Lord. That's the wrong focus. That is destructive. That's undermining what God's trying to do. God causes the growth. Verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters, they're one. They're harmonious. Walking side by side. Same mission. Like all 11 players on a football team on the offense, they're all doing the same thing, even though they've got different positions, different giftedness, different glory. But each will receive his own reward. Every Christian will receive his own reward. This is amazing. Every Christian is going to receive a reward according to, notice, not their success or apparent success. If you've heard of that church, it's exploding. They've got 7,000 members in three years. Isn't that awesome? Well, not necessarily. And God is the one that gives the reward, by the way, which goes against our human nature because we want to reward people. I give them five. I give that church five stars. I give that pastor four stars. I get, we have no business doing that. We're not the judge. 
God is the judge. He's the only judge. He's the only one that gives rewards. He gives rewards to individual Christians, not according to their success, manifestly seen at the human level. The reward is given according to their own labor. See, you can work for the Lord in a certain place of ministry and not see a lot of outward fruit for a long period of time. You've got missionary stories galore about that who go on the mission field for 20, 30 years and they're laboring and they're working hard and they're giving their life and some of them die and the fruit of it is not immediately seen or maybe for a very long time or maybe ever outwardly speaking. Are they going to be rewarded by God for their faithfulness? Absolutely. Not their apparent outward success according to human standards, which is what the Corinthians were doing. They had a false human outward superficial standard of gauging success. Every one of us is prone to doing that. And it has no part in the church and no part in the life of a Christian. We're going to all be rewarded based on our faithfulness in our labor. Verse 9, we want to do it with excellence, but the emphasis is not on the outside. And then verse 9, Paul closes and says, for we are God's fellow workers. There it is. Me and Apollos, we all work together. All of it. Isn't that amazing? We are, we are working together in tandem, not just with our fellow believer and Christian. We are fellow workers with God Himself. We co-labor with God in the ministry and with Jesus. That's amazing. What a blessing. And he reminds them, you are God's field. You are God's building. In other words, God, it's God's church. God owns the church. He's the head of the church. He's the judge of the church. He dictate, He's the boss of the church. So we got to be reminded of our rightful place. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 5. Go ahead and go there. This is a good reminder for all of us. It's God's church. It's God's ministry. God is the only one that can affect real, supernatural, eternal change in the life of a sinner. He does it through His truth and His Spirit, through the great Gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are called to be obedient and faithful servants, no matter what we're doing whether we're laboring in the backgrounds before church starts of carrying tables and setting those up versus maybe standing on stage where everybody can see you and singing or preaching. All the labor is equally important as it furthers the ministry. And this is true of every Christian. Here's part of your biography, my biography. It's kind of scary. It comes with blessings, but it also comes with a healthy sense of fear. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 says this, Therefore we, if you're a Christian, you are the we. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. We should be ambitious about pleasing God in everything we do all the time. Why? Verse 10, For we, every single Christian, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to be judged by Christ. When we die, we go to heaven, we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is our judge. What's He going to judge? Well, so that each each one of us may be recompensed or paid back or rewarded for his or her deeds done in the body while you were on earth as a Christian. We're going to be paid back. That's that reward from 1 Corinthians 3. And that reward is based on our faithful labor. And that reward is based on according to what we have done in the ministry in terms of our faithfulness and how we lived our life, whether good or worthless is the literal word, whether good or worthless. Are we being wise in terms of stewardship of our time and our treasures and our talents, investing it in God's ministry, being faithful laborers for the kingdom of God so that in the end and even during that time, God is the one and the only one who receives all the glory. So 
Let me summarize by just four reminders from this passage that we can try to implement in our own life, practically speaking. I'd encourage all of us, go deeper. Go deeper in the Word. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't stay at the superficial level. And don't just want to hear Bible truths that tickle your ears. Go deeper. Because that brings great growth and great conviction and great production for the kingdom of God. So go deeper in the Word of God. Number two, evaluate yourself in light of Galatians 5, 18-22 on a regular basis. Am I walking in the Spirit or am I walking in the flesh at any given time in my life? And evaluate yourself in Galatians 5. And if you have a lot of courage, then have somebody else that knows you evaluate you in light of Galatians 5, 18-20. Ooh, that's scary. And the most scariest person of all that can evaluate you is either your spouse or one of your kids or somebody that lives with you. Because they know more of the truth. But that's a great way to evaluate ourselves and convict ourselves and change behavior and ask for God's help. Three, consider other believers partners in ministry, not competitors. What a glorious thought. So you're, you're on my team. You're a fellow Denver Bronco. That's awesome. Touchdown, Super Bowl, whatever your team is. So con- consider other believers partners. And then finally, number four, don't esteem humans, but give all the glory to God and Christ where it rightfully belongs. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.